I'd like for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 1. The first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Our text is verses 1 through 8. And this is the second sermon in the series of sermons on John the Baptizer. I'm certain he was Southern Baptist. But he... he uh, he, he was the baptizer, that's though he... What do you think of when you think of an evangelist? Now, I'm not talking about Freddie Gage or, you know. <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you think of when you think of an evangelist? What is the image that pops into your mind? Well, this man who preaches to the masses of people usually in some large church or maybe in some civic auditorium or if he's really, you know, got it, got it, got it going, got a big name, some great athletic stadium. And they usually have a, an organization of people that do the detail work, advanced men that come in and prepare the way and, and then guys that stay, stay for the follow-up and they're very charismatic, have a tremendous amount of charisma, they slick their hair back and wear fancy clothes, you know. And uh, there is something about them that just commands attention. They're dynamic. And they preach a simple gospel message, most of them, and with power, really. And there is this drawing to these men. There is something that is uh, electric about being, you know, having the gift of, of evangelism or the gift of an evangelist. And there are some people who attack them and there are those who almost adore them and worship them, but you can't ignore them. And there is a dynamic about an evangelist. That's the first kind. In 1973, a man by the name of Carl Menninger, Menninger Clinic, wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? And he started with this story about a strange man who stood on a street corner in Chicago at, at rush hour in the, at noon, and he never said a word. He just stood there, and as people passed, he had this penetrating look or gaze. And then, you know, just spontaneously, you know, out of the blue, he would point a long finger at somebody in the crowd and say one word, guilty. And, I mean, that'd shake you up, wouldn't it? You know, you're on your lunch hour and you pass by the street corner and some strange guy, you know, puts his finger right in your face and shouts, guilty. Menninger said that one day two guys were walking along and and he did that to one of them, you know, guilty, pointed right at this one guy. And as they walked on, the guy looked at his friend and said, how did he know, you know? <laughs> Carl Menninger said that everybody is guilty. I mean, the question is not, am I guilty? He said, the question is, what, of what am I guilty? And there is some kind of an overpowering, overpowering arrogance of some strange man who'd stand on the corner and just select certain group ones out of a group and point guilty and say guilty at them and point at them. But he said everybody's guilty of something, some negative thought or some 
sin of omission. And before whom are we guilty? Not somebody who stands out on the street corner, but before God, he said, we're all guilty. And Menninger said that we can all relate to the first kind of guy, you know, that, that's attractive and dynamic and appealing and commanding. And there's something exciting about the fact that Billy Graham's coming and we're going to be at the stadium and for a whole week we just go there and just sense this, this electricity that's in the air. But there's something troubling about the second kind. About a man who would just stand and stare you down and then point his bony finger like Nathan in your face and say, guilty. Well, John the baptizer is like the second man. And Mark begins his gospel like that. Strange man is John the baptizer. And all of a sudden this man appears on the scene with no credentials really. And he begins to preach one message, repent. I want you to read with me verse 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now what John the baptizer is doing is that he's introducing now revolution. He's introducing a revolution, he's describing an event that has never happened before in the history of mankind. And this first edition of the good news is being distributed by this strange man who has come out of the wilderness. And he is literally the embodiment, says Mark, of Isaiah's prediction in chapter 40. Behold, there is one who is coming who is going to make way the, the way of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord. He's coming for the purpose of clearing the way and preparing the way for the Lord Himself. And He came and He was gone by the time He was 35. And He had one year of ministry. We often talk about the fact that Jesus had only three years of ministry. This man had one year of ministry and disappeared from the scene. And he didn't stay around to see the crucifixion. And he wasn't there for the glorious resurrection. And he didn't see the Lord ascend. He was here for one year. And then he was gone. Now I want you to turn with me and just put a little place, something in the place there in Mark 1. I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 55. And I want to read in verse 8, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 55 to kind of set the, set the tone of what this strange evangelist is like. Again, verse 8, some of you can quote these words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What God is doing here is, is God is saying that God is contrasting His thoughts with ours and His planning with ours and His pattern with ours. And we're really the antithesis of one another, are we not? God thinks one way and we think another. 
God plans one way, we plan another way. What God is saying is this. You would, if, you, if you'd have been planning, you would have had your king born in a palace. I had my king born in a stable. And if you'd had planned this whole scenario, if you'd devised this scheme of things, you'd have brought this herald into town like the president's cabinet member dressed in a three-piece suit. A man who would kind of set things up, get all the ducks lined up in a row. A guy who could kind of manipulate the crowd like the advanced man does. And if you'd have been doing it, you'd have had this guy, you know, that makes no ways and gets, gets everything all planned. And my man is a kind of a cross between Rip Van Winkle and Robinson Crusoe. And he's lived all of his life out here in the desert. None of, nobody heard of him. And he's not been to a university. He's learned what he's learned at the feet of God in this waste howling wilderness. And here he comes on the scene, unkept, wild looking, with an unkept beard and hairdo, and there's nothing about his appearance that's appealing. This is my way of doing things, not your way, he said. Now I want you to look at his arrival, verse 4. Here we are, back in Mark 1. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. No trumpets to announce His coming. No advanced man, no sponsoring church. He just came preaching a baptism of repentance. Now watch this carefully. In order to be a Jew, in order to be a member of the family of God, three things were absolutely essential. One was circumcision, a mark of the covenant. Another thing was, was a sacrifice. You had to bring a sacrifice, absolutely essential. The third essential was baptism. If you were a Gentile convert to Judaism, a proselyte, you had to be baptized as a symbol or an, a, a, of cleansing, as an evidence of cleansing. And so quite naturally, it wasn't sprinkling, it was a bath. It was, the, it was an immersion of the whole body of, of, of bathing. I want you to watch this. Look at this strange thing happening. Here was a Jew asking Jews to submit to what only Gentiles were required to submit to. And what we're discovering is fundamental to the revolution that's begun. And that is this. That just being a Jew didn't mean that you were a member of God's chosen people. It was not the Jewish life but the cleansed life that belonged to God. And he stands before these proud Jews, all of them out there in a row, all of them standing out there in this crowd of people. He's standing before these proud Jews, telling them they need to be baptized and declare their faith in the Messiah to get bathed as a demonstration of their faith. It'll be like telling a pro athlete, you need to get in shape. It'll be like telling a PhD, you need an education. It'll be like telling a group of high school cheerleaders, you need to get excited. He's telling all these proud Jews, you need to go out here and get yourself baptized as a symbol of your cleansed life. Now here were these Jews, it's the most amazing thing. Here were these Jews standing out there listening to this wild man telling them that they needed something they thought they already had. 
And here is the twist of all of this. He's not telling them to go out and get baptized. There's nothing magical, nothing cleansing about getting baptized. He's not telling them you need to go get baptized. He's telling them you need to go out and get baptized in the, with a baptism of repentance. In other words, there needs to be a complete change within you. That's what repentance means. You need to examine your attitude concerning the Messiah and prepare yourself for the kingdom. And they came out from under the rocks. And historians indicated that the cities emptied of people as they went out to the desert to listen to this man preach this revolutionary gospel. And the revolutionary gospel was this. You need to have a reversal of your life, a change of attitude, and be baptized in evidence of that. Now notice, look at his audience, verse 5 of the first chapter. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, I want you to do a little work with me, so get ready for this. I want you to turn to the third chapter of Matthew and the third chapter of Luke. And you, just, you can find that, just put, hold the place there. Because I want, the, the story of John the Baptizer is, is, is found in all four Gospels. And so I want us to see what Luke and Matthew have to say about him. It's intriguing if you'll look at it with me. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Now what's he going to do when all these Pharisees and Sadducees coming out, coming out there for baptism? That's a strange sight. Here are these religious, this religious cult, and they're coming out to him for baptism. Now look what happens. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now that's what you call your direct preaching approach. He said, you brood of, he didn't sit around and figure out what to say so that folks would come back. I can promise you that. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Look at this next statement. Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our fathers, for I say to you that God is able to, from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not what? Bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, you guys are getting what you deserve. Don't you come to me to be baptized. I don't want to baptize you until I see Evidence of outward faith. I don't want to baptize you until I see the evidence of some faith on the outside. For you see, baptism is not to effect faith, saving faith. Baptism is the evidence of it. He said, now let me see some evidence of a changed life. Let me see some fruit, for baptism is not in order to receive genuine faith. Baptism is to be the evidence that there is fruitful faith. 
Now when I see the evidence of a changed life, he said, when I see the evidence that something has gone on to bring about revolutionary change, then I'll baptize you. All right, now turn over to the book of Luke chapter, chapter 3. We'll start reading there at verse 7. He therefore began saying to the multitude who were going out to be baptized him, same language, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say the same thing. Now look at verse 10. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? Now you know what's happening here? They're saying, Okay, you tell us to bring evidence of genuine, the evidence of genuine faith. What is that? That's a good question. What is the evidence of genuine faith? If you're not going to baptize me until I give evidence that I've had genuine repentance, what is it that gives indication of genuine repentance? What is a fruitful outward faith? Well, he gives the answer. It's amazing. And I've circled. There are three groups of people who are questioning him, who are asking that question. The first are the multitudes. Circle that word multitudes. And let him who has food do likewise. All right? First group multitudes saying, all right, if we've got to bring evidence that we have, been, we have genuinely repented and we have fruitful faith, what is that? He said, well, let me tell you what it is. If you've got two coats and you see a guy that, that one, you give him one. And if you see people who are hungry, you give them something to eat. You have evidence of genuine repentance. See? All right, there's a second group. Verse 12, cir circle tax gatherers. Motley looking group. And the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, and, and, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Good question. What is there that can prove to you? Prove that I, that I have genuine repentance. This is what he said. Collect no more than you should have, you've been ordered to. Oh man, that'll, that'll rock them on their heels. Because that's how the tax collector made his living. Luck, luxurious, exorbitant living is that he had a certain amount to get, which was bad enough, but he just upped the taxes and kept the top, scum, skimmed off the top. He said, okay, you want... You want to give evidence that you have genuine repentance? Stop ripping people off. Now that does a whole lot of good for us here today. You're an employee, stop ripping off your employer. You're a businessman, stop ripping off these people out here, you see. And he's talking about being totally honest in what we're doing, you see. You're going to give evidence of fruitful faith? You be, evident, you be honest in your dealings with people. All right, he comes down to third. And some soldiers, circle that word, soldiers, were questioning him saying, what about us and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. That is, don't use your position to take advantage of people. Don't use your position to take advantage of others. Don't throw your weight around. Don't take money by force. Or accuse anyone falsely. 
Hey, I mean, don't go out here backbiting people and saying things about them that's not true. Man, does this get home to us or not? I mean, don't accuse someone falsely. And then he said, and be content with your wages. Now, what a deal. I mean, how do you give evidence? How do you give evidence that you have genuine, a genuine fruitful faith? You are content in life with what you have. Now, if that don't stir up the nest, you know, I don't know what will. What are the implications of the gospel? Let's spell them out. I mean, we invite people to come and quote, let Jesus come into your heart. But what are the implications of that? What does it mean to embrace the Christian faith? What does it mean to come out to a man and say, I like what you're saying, I want to follow that message. What does that mean? Well, let's spell out the implications. Fathers, mothers, parents, employers, employees, if repentance has come, if genuine fruitful faith has come, it's going to impact your life in relationship to others. It's going to impact your generosity and your treatment of others. It's going to have social implications. Now, I don't know about you, but I can kind of get excited about this. Let's go back to Mark 1. Before I spit on the front row here. Mark 1. You notice they don't sit on the front row. They get, they get completely out of the spray. All right, we're going to look at his appearance, chapter, verse 6 of chapter 1. His appearance, if you're following in the, in the outline. And John was clothed, was clothed with camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. And he didn't eat it at uh, steak and ale. He ate grasshoppers and wild honey. Somebody said that not only what he wore, but his whole life was a protest. I love it. The place where he stayed was different. No, ever, no preacher ever stayed out there. Those of us who are world travelers and have been to the Holy Land have been out where this was, where this happened. It's out near the Dead Sea and there's nothing out there but waste howling wilderness. No preacher's going to stay out there. He had no address. He wore clothes that no one else wore. He, 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 he wouldn't have had his, he wouldn't have been color style. Can you just see somebody coming up to John and saying, looks like you're a summer. <laughs> you, you look good in blue, you know. You need to wear blue and Nobody came up and did that. He wore, a, he wore a camel suit. He was austere. Have you ever thought it strange that some guys will get in the pulpit and preach sacrifice and, uh, and the sacrificial life and the... And the, and the, and the cross life and wear $700 silk suits and alligator shoes and Rolex watches. I, I watched one day is this guru out in, 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 uh, in Oregon. You remember him? What was his name? Rashish? Yeah. And, and they had all these people. Now he, he convinced these people that they need to live a total uh, ascetic lifestyle. Give up everything of course to him. <laughs> 
And so he, he comes driving in, and all these people lined up on the side of the road, and they're, they, I mean, they've given everything to him. You know what he's riding in? A Rolls Royce. had 21 of them. And he had it mafia colors on the window. You couldn't even see him, you know. He's riding in that, that little parade in that Rolls Royce, you know, gold-plated. Seems awful strange now. You say, well, preacher, you, you go wear a camel's hair suit, and that'll give you the privilege of talking about this. Now, now look, whatever he wore, watch this, whatever he wore, it modeled what he said. Now here's the point. What he said, he modeled with what he wore. Do you? Does what you wear model what you say? Well, let me say it another way. Do you practice what you preach? Is what your life is, when people look of it, look at it, does it model what you declare? You see? And this man declared this repentant lifestyle and his life modeled what he preached. Now look at what it, verse 7, his announcement. Fantastic. And he was preaching and saying, after me one is coming, look at here, point one, he's mightier than I. Now John the Baptist is this lean, mean preaching machine but he said, this guy who's coming after me is mightier than I am. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Mightier than me. I love that. Do you know where the strength of Jesus was? You know where it was? It wasn't in the fact that he was this leather-beaten man, looked like John the bab baptizer. His strength was inner strength. He's mightier than me. Somebody, some people have a low pain index, just a little pain, and they sell out. He endured every pain there is to endure, never sold out. And somebody says that everybody has a price. It's just a matter of where on the scale that price is. And somebody tried this, you know, how much money would it take for you to eat a worm, you know, that kind of stuff. Where's your price index, your price level? He was tempted to sell out at the highest price available. He could have had the whole kingdom, and he didn't. He had this inner strength, mightier than me, he said. Second thing, he's greater than I. I'm not even worthy to lean, lean over and, and, and strap his sandal on. You know what that was? That was the role of a servant. A servant's job was to come in every morning to the master, strap on his sandals. I'm not even worthy to do the servant's task, he said. Greater than I am. I love the next. He said, he's holier, holier than I am. Here's this holy man. If he'd have walked up to you in that day, you know, if he walks, you've you got to feel this is the holiest man who spent 30 years at the feet of God in a waste howling wilderness. And John said, he's holier than me. 
What a sermon. You go back to school tomorrow and you preach this three-point sermon. Let me tell you about somebody who is mightier than I am. So, so, so you can bench press 500 pounds? Big deal. So you can run an 880? I heard there's a kid in, high, in junior high that run an 880 around 210, projected to be a, a world-class athlete if he keeps it up here in Durantville. So what? He is mightier than we are. Go tell that to somebody tomorrow. He's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to lean over. I'd like to tell you about somebody I can't even tie and holier. I mean, I sinned. And there's so much about my life of which I'm ashamed. Let me tell you about this man who never tasted sin. You tell that to somebody. You got yourself a sermon. Now I see some similarities, and we'll get these and I'll quit. Number one, in the annals of time, mavericks still abound. In the annals of time, mavericks still abound. Some of the most penetrating messages come from the most unusual messengers. Think of the people in your own case. Some of the weirdest guys. Some of the most unusual messengers declare some of the most dynamic, penetrating messages. That's still true. That's still true. Number two. In the ranks of the faithful, hypocrites still appear. And so there's still a place for this message. Don't come around here doing that kind of stuff. Show me some evidence. Don't talk that kind of talk. Show me some evidence. I mean, start being honest in your dealing. Quit ripping people off. I mean, if your neighbor is hungry, don't talk about being in love with God if you can't feed your neighbor. If you see people who are, are cold, don't you talk about the love of God if you can't share your coat. And quit talking about people and accusing them of stuff you don't know is true or not. And quit using your position to, to, to overpower people and intimidate them. I mean, come on now. Give some evidence. And even in the ranks of the faithful, I mean in the, in the ranks of the children of God, hypocrites still appear. Third, in the lives of the fruitful, humility is still appropriate. In the lives of the fruitful, humility is still appropriate. John just kept on saying, don't follow me, follow him. I'm, not a, I'm no big deal. He is. And the idea is that in order for him to increase, we must decrease. Isn't it interesting? 
that John wasn't chosen to be an apostle. Seems to me like if Jesus is going to get out here and choose 12 people to follow him, the least he could ask his cousin. You know, pretty, pretty fantastic guy. Isn't it amazing that when he chose the apostles, he didn't choose John, the baptizer. I mean, that guy, wow, what he could have, you see. But it wouldn't have worked. Because in order for Jesus to increase, John the baptizer had to fade out. Now when you and I are ready to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and we're willing to come to this place of saying, Lord, I'm willing to be nothing. I'm willing to be nobody if you'll be somebody. That's when God begins to use us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful Word of God, for this exciting truth that John the baptizer came to declare and to embody. We're thrilled, Lord, at the prospect, the thought that each one of us can be one who will point out the Lamb of God, Savior of the world. Lord, I, just, I pray that you'll help us to understand that the, we can't do that until we bear fruit evident of evidence of repentance. And we're not qualified to point him out till we give some signals, some signs that we're genuinely changed people. Call us, Lord, out of a mediocre, mediocre, formal religious practice to a full commitment of our life to Jesus Christ, to pointing him out. For I pray in his name. There are three wonderful invitations. It's wonderful to have the privilege of responding to God. It's wonderful to have the privilege of doing God's will. You have the privilege tonight of, of coming to know Christ as your personal Savior, and the will of God is for you to be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you've never been saved, you have an opportunity tonight to walk out of here bound for heaven. Would you like to come tonight and place your faith in Jesus Christ? John said, He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You have a wonderful privilege tonight to join a church. God has given us a church, left the church to do through which He would do His work and through whom He would do His work. You can be a member of this church. If you feel God leading you to come, and you might, you have the privilege tonight to 
come and say, I'm coming genuinely repenting. And I want to get squared away so that my life will literally be a model of what I've said I am. And so we'll just give two stand. We give, we'll have two stanzas, and that won't take long, so you better hurry. If you're coming, you'll need to come on the first word while we stand and sing.